Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Classical Queer Podcast. Today we are very thrilled to be joined by Nick May, saxophonist um, and a wonderful administrator of very interesting projects, which I'm, I'm quite excited to tell you all about and, and to hear uh, Nick's thought on everything that you're doing. So welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is, I'm really grateful for this. And uh, thanks for, for telling us about all your, your life and work. And we, we generally start with kind of a bio um, in the sense that uh, we want to hear the most broad strokes uh, understanding of what you do, knowing that we're going to talk about uh, your life and work for the next like hour. Um, but tell us about uh, where you are, where you grew up, uh, your music life. Uh, if you want to tell us about school, great. If not, uh, tell us about your projects. Give us a bit of an overview. Yeah. So right now I'm currently based in Kansas City, Missouri, not Kansas City, Kansas. It gets, people get confused with that. But so Kansas City, Missouri, where I, uh, where I teach here at a few different uh, colleges, private academies. And then when I'm not doing that, I'm touring all over uh, with the I Exist project. And so kind of back, backing up with that. Um, I ended up actually growing up uh, in Nebraska, which is in the middle of the United States. Um, a lot of people think call it kind of Farmville because there's just like nothing but cornfields and just like it's very rural. Um, so I ended up actually growing up on a farm and so uh, started playing saxophone in 2004 in fifth grade, which that that that, that like dates me and ages me really, really fast. <laughs> but yeah, so grew up um, just playing saxophone and like you know, I would even say kind of through middle school and high school, I never actually, like I was, like I ended up doing well, like I was lucky enough to be in a few honor bands, get a few awards and whatnot, but I never really thought of it being a career at that point. Um, I actually wanted to go into anesthesiology because the idea of making half a million dollars a year sounded really appealing, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, uh, the the short version of the how kind of how that story kind of what kind of propelled me into music was um our band director had a symphony rehearsal uh open symphony rehearsal at the high school one afternoon um and so we were he invited the whole class just to like sit in if you want to do homework whatnot and so i remember uh, i ended up showing up because it was like a tuesday afternoon there was nothing going on and they ended up uh, they were rehearsing, like doing a full run through of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony, um, which ended up shaping a lot of things kind of just moving forward. But long story short, like I ended up sitting about less than five feet in front of a full orchestra, just being washed with like that is my first like actual like professional, you know, higher music, whatever you want to call it. And that like basically like flipped the switch and that made me want to just like, you know what? Like, that's what I want to do. I want to, like, do stuff like this. I want to be, like, hear music, play music like this. Um, and so now, like, ended up going, like, ended up doing the my undergrad and master's in music. Um, and then ever since then, when I graduated in 2018, I've been teaching, performing, and doing my best to make it happen. I mean, what a great first piece, Chelsea Five. That's, yeah. that's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> I mean, what, yeah. what a piece to let wash over you. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, but you're certainly not making half a million a year, at least, or if you no. are, you're, yeah, I mean, <laughs> hardly. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that's fantastic. This is, uh, I think you might be the first saxophonist we've had, actually. Oh, wow. So, welcome, but you're in good company. I'm a woodwindist, so I'm, I'm very uh, at home in saxophone world. Um, mm -hmm. And so the three pieces we're going to eventually listen to are, are wonderful uh, solos and duets and, and um, great saxophone repertoire. But I'm curious where from uh, orchestral world, Shostakovich world, uh, you ended up getting into uh, saxophone because they don't they don't cross all that often. It, yeah, I mean, I mean, classical saxophone in itself is a weird anomaly, and it's kind of its own little niche, you know, kind of its own little niche kind of section of classical music. Um, usually, you know, when most people think saxophone, they think jazz, they think big band, that kind of stuff. And so I I do a little bit of improvisation and jazz stuff, but that's not kind of like my bread and butter, so to speak. And so, um, you know, typically, like, at least for me, like, when I started studying, um, doing, like, private lessons, like, I didn't even know classical saxophone was a thing. Like, nor do most people, nor does 99% of people do, you know. Um, and so I ended up kind of exploring that route. And there's a few um, kind of orchestral roles, like, actually with the saxophone. Like, there's Romeo and Juliet, Prokofiev which I've had the, I've been able to do that a few times. There's pictures at an exhibition, the old castle. Mm -hmm. um, and then the lines kind of get blurred when you get into like the Gershwin stuff, like Rhapsody mm -hmm. in Blue, American in Paris. Um, Cause it's kind of jazz, kind of classical. It's its own little, it's its own thing. Uh, but just kind of studying that repertoire and then ended up kind of diving into the niche um, classical saxophone repertoire, that canon that kind of propelled that kind of further. Um, and actually I do play a little clarinet as well. So I did know kind of the classical side of things, just, you know, from playing clarinet and like I've played an orchestral clarinet a few times um, where I, and like I actually teach like clarinet at the college I teach at. Um, but so like kind of all of that kind of pushed further in that direction, more kind of down that rabbit, that, that trail I went, kind of went, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I when when Jacob said, "Oh, we've got we've got Nick coming on, and it's saxophone," I, I kind of had this like immediately. I was thinking, "Okay, Gershwin. I've got Gershwin. I got a few other things." But but, yeah. but but I mean, what about? I mean, there's those kind of the very classical repertoire. But but is it? I mean, tell us a little bit about the modern repertoire uh, for for sort of classical sax, or I mean, classical in the crossover sense. Mm -hmm. Well, like. I mean, even going back, I mean, kind of how it propelled forward, like there's like Debussy wrote a, like a piece for saxophone and orchestra. And like, there's some of the bigger names, um, like obviously Debussy Glazunov, which, you know, usually when most people think Glazunov, they think the violin concerto, but there mm -hmm. is a saxophone concerto. That was like one of his last pieces he wrote. Um, but kind of like in a modern sense, you know, classical saxophone's kind of becoming kind of a fusion between the jazz and classical idioms. Like you have, um, I don't know if you've heard like the John Adams concerto that prim oh, yes. it, it fuses a lot of jazz, it, like jazz language in a more modern um, kind of orchestral setting. Uh, and then he has other, you know, operetta pieces like uh, Nixon in China, which is a very heavily jazzed influence. So I think that's kind of where um, kind of like where the modern kind of sets is kind of blending between these different, these different areas. You know, there's a little bit of jazz, a little bit of, traditional classical stuff, a little bit of minimalism, a little bit of rock, 
um, you know, it kind of grabs a little bit of a little bit of everywhere and kind of blends it all together. And then that's kind of what gets you into classical saxophone. And certainly we're going to listen to uh, Stuart Peach, which is a wonderful friend of the podcast. Um, and it's, it's definitely idiomatically saxophone, but it isn't really drawing on anything jazz. And so that's the kind of fun thing about um, modern, quote unquote, like jazz, uh, not jazz, classical saxophone uh, world is that it really is its own thing. And I think there's something really, I always say this about wind music and I'm like a wind person and so I, I you know I get on my own my own high horse a lot of the time with wind music but I tend to think of wind music as um because we have so few boundaries for us it actually opens up so many different possibilities because we're not held to like violin rap world you know they have so many um intense canon pieces that are you can't touch them you can't like do anything with them and they're like really important pieces and that's great um but it means everything else has to reference all of that other repertoire and saxophone and modern uh like wind music really doesn't have a huge history like you say and where it does it, it really is kind of like it just pops up in some wc some glasnost and things and so it opens up these like wonderful worlds of uh composition that uh, really aren't necessarily referential to anything else. Like they can be, but they really can just be their own world of, of sound. Um, and not to like necessarily tie it to queerness, but like I tend to think of uh, the queering of like modern classical music is in that non-referential, in that it doesn't well, have to connect, right? Yeah, and like even like the definition of queer, like there is no set like parameters of what queer is or isn't. It's is that you know, it's even just outside of music, it's what you make of it and what you want to make of it for yourself and your identity. So it's kind of in a roundabout way, like I joke about it, but like classical saxophone is kind of queer in itself just because it's what, you know, there are no set boundaries of what you can be, can't be, um, and you can kind of make of it what you want. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have, I, and I say this just because I'm knee deep in my own like queer research for my own degrees at the moment, but like um, the, the idea of, and I just I wrote a paper about this literally last week. The idea <laughs> of advertising. So now, now I have to talk about it. No one read it, so I have to like talk about it. But the idea of like queerness is like, is in essence just like a disruption. Like the, the disruption of any norm is the queerness. And like if we've mm -hmm. in the music world, saxophone is the disruption like we don't exist in a classical sense in saxophone in so many ways and that disruption is queerness like in classical music but again my high horse yeah i mean we started early on the queer bit we normally don't get that till the end of the show but we started <laughs> early but uh, i mean how how's it been uh, i mean again i'm trying to think about how audiences react to you um in terms of you know they go to a i mean obviously when they see a concert they know it's going to be saxophone because you're yeah. advertised as that but mm -hmm. but how, how how do they do you think they do reference that i mean again maybe it's the similar question but you know how do audiences deal with the the kind of difference that you bring to to the classical music world yeah so like typically you know, this kind of goes on to like the whole curational side of things. Like when I start like working on like programming and stuff, um, 
I try to kind of like, like from a programming point, even with the exist project, my queer, like the queer recitals, or even if it's just a normal, you know, more standard performance, I try and use the formula where I meet them with where they know, like what they think, what they expect. So like, I'll start with something jazz influenced dish, you know, so it's okay. You know, it's not completely new. It's not completely weird. It's something that meets them kind of where they're at and then treat the whole performance as like a story or an arc kind of getting them further and further out of, of like the comfort zone, you know? So like if I started, you know, the first thing they walk into and we start with atonal, uh, multiphonics <laughs> and just all the disruptive type stuff, like that's going to set the mood, you know, and that could either be really, you know, really intriguing for people who have never heard that, or it could be really off putting just because, okay, we're starting with Denisov or something like that. And it's, you know, that's just a lot to walk into, right? You have to warm them up in a sense. And so I think kind of thinking, you know, actually thinking about the audience and, you know, trying to take care of them just from like the, the, you know, from the perspective of, okay, they're sitting through an hour of long music. How do we make this, you know, how do we make this impactful? And also like, how do, you know, just even their tolerance levels, um, how do we pace it? And, you know, having that in mind when putting together programs, putting together just even the order of pieces, like you don't want to do two 20 minute pieces back to back just because that's exhausting for the average listener, you know? And so usually, you know, with people like, I mean, in modern society, like attention spans are shorter. So like shorter pieces, that's a really good kind of way to start programs and then build it up longer, longer. And then you can also get more, um, explore more kind of the further you go because they're more warmed up to more different type of stuff, if that makes sense. So where did the IXS program uh, start? Where did that begin for you? Well, so on paper, like it started a year ago, um, but like the whole idea of it and kind of where I wanted to go, um, I've had that pretty much in the back of my head for the last, you know, probably four or five years, like even before COVID times. Um, I've always wanted, I've always had this idea in the back of my head just to like, you know, when and if the time is right, I've always wanted to start um, something queer based, you know, I didn't really have it defined at that, you know, just sitting in my head, but like I wanted it, you know, I really wanted to create something that was almost like New Music USA or like some sort of queer foundation that just helps promote uh, and curate queer music, art, performers, composers, all the above. And I've always just, you know, wouldn't that be nice if there was a queer specific entity that did all that? Um, just because like applying for grants and whatnot, like there's always a diversity, you know, that's always a, a clause, but like rarely have I ever found one that's actually queer specific. Um, you know, there's, and so, you know, that's always been like ruminating in the back of my head. And so about a, a little over a year ago, um, and this kind of ties together with the music from the, that we'll be listening to later, uh, Flitz Quip by one of my friends, uh, Evan Bogelhold. He wrote that piece for me. And we actually, uh, I was lucky enough to premiere that in Carnegie Hall uh, last year. Um, and so after that, there was probably about three or four other pieces a couple friends wrote that I had commissioned. And they were all queer and ended up being kind of queer based programmatically, like with the story, stories behind them. And so I had probably about... 
I would say about 30, maybe 40 minutes of just like queer composed music that I was just sitting on. Um, and I wanted to record an album and it's, I'm working on it right now. But so basically I put out a Facebook post saying, Hey, I have, you know, about 40 minutes. All I need is really about one or two more pieces. Is there any interest is, you know, would anyone be interested in kind of working together on something like this on a project like this? Um, and then social media did its thing and it got a lot of, uh, a lot of positive uh, reactions from that. And so to the tune of, I think about 40 or so different composers were interested in working together. And, you know, that kind of was just kind of like the ignition that was like, okay, I need to actually make this a thing, work on this. Um, obviously money is my wallet does not want me to do this right now, but uh, excluding that, that parameter, like, you know, I want to, I think this is the right time to make this happen. And so, so far, um, lucky enough, everything's been able to work and we're moving forward with it. Um, and like, eventually I wanted to actually break into its own kind of nonprofit entity that does fund other music besides saxophone music. I wanted to fund clarinet music, flute, violin, orchestral, vocal, you know, I want the project to eventually be removed from myself in the sense where I'm not the main performer, you know? Yeah. So, so maybe for the audience members who aren't quite as familiar, maybe just explain a little bit more about specifically what the goals of the project are. Yeah. So the I exist project, um, uh, was, was basically founded on the premise of promoting, uh, queer music and, uh, music that by composers and performers and specifically queer, um, the queer culture and narratives with that music. So sharing stories mm -hmm. of queerness through music through different performers and promoting, um, you know, new music through that, through all of that. And, and is this kind of like, um, you say it's kind of still linked to you at the moment. Is this, a, is this like a, a regional US thing or are you planning to expand it? Well, over the US so right now, I mean, I mean, I mean, you brought up Stuart, like Stuart was the first yeah. actual international uh, composer with the project, which was really exciting to have him write a piece. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, yeah, so like right now we've, uh, the project's commissioned about, I believe, 30 new, 30 new pieces, um, all for, you know, wow. that's eventually going to be performed all over the country. Um, right now in this season, I have about 20 or 25 scheduled performances for the project. And so it's literally all over the country uh, in the United States right now. And um, planning on recording the first volume of stuff end of summer next year and then work on the next set of stuff. Um, so it's really been about creating new repertoire and new, specifically new queer repertoire. Um, and so right now, a lot of the stuff is saxophone and saxophone with piano, just because it's easy for me to perform this stuff because I don't have to hire myself big air quotes to learn all this stuff. Like I don't have to, you know what I mean? So it's, it's easy on that front. <laughs> um, you know, but, um, like right now, you know, the next kind of steps we have, um, uh, an emerging student composer award right now. And so this next year is for pretty much saxophone plus any um, collaborative, collaborative instrument. But like in the next few years, I really wanted to branch out to, you know, when the student, when we select like the students of that, the, the piece of that is not saxophone specific. And we find, you know, have a network of different performers that we work with that, you know, eventually have a piece written for them. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. fantastic. Very, yeah. very good. 
Thank so you. we should probably listen to one of the pieces then. Maybe let's start with Stuart's because it's uh, the one we've been talking about the most. But um, tell us about uh, Stuart's, Stuart's piece for you. Yeah, so Stuart wrote uh, the next piece on queer survival. Um, and it really is about just addressing the targeted violence from queer, you know, in queer culture. Uh, this is actually probably like one of the most emotionally like just taxing ones to talk about like in the middle of a performance because it very much is in response to, you know, targeted violence uh, and those who have not made it through that. Uh, and so we actually, Alex and I, uh, Alex Lee, who's a uh, collaborative pianist who's been touring all over the country with me with this, we actually performed this and premiered this in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado about a month or so ago. And um, that was pretty just pretty demanding and just hard emotionally because that's about 60 miles uh, south of Laramie, Wyoming, where uh, Matthew Shepard was, had the attacks and was lynched. And we found out later afterwards, um, after, after the attack, he was actually brought to a hospital in Fort Collins, which was about half a mile away from where we performed. And so just that hits very hard. Um, and so whenever we bring that up and this is also, you know, the 25th anniversary of the attack. Um, and so like just all of those pieces together just makes it very difficult to, uh, talk about like in the middle of performance, you know, cause you're performing it and then you have to go back and talk meaningfully about it. And it's just, it just hits so hard. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's in essence what, um, his piece is about, uh, and also kind of as a tribute to all those who have not made it through whatever attacks or violence that they face. I think we'll take a listen then.
it's it's interesting that you say that the piece is emotionally difficult to play or talk about and then play um because my first thought listening to it was uh as a player listening to it and how i would then play it myself because i often like put myself in in the player's head and i think it's uh it's difficult to ride that line between staying in the moment of being the musician um with all the mechanics and technicals that you need to like figure out um but also being the artist and the queer person and bringing that um emotion and rawness to it and oftentimes those are at odds like i think it is um maybe more difficult than maybe listeners would kind of recognize to uh, be able to play that specific piece with all the good, wonderful tone and, and air and support and things that you have, but also uh, keeping all of the other stuff in mind, all of the reasons that it was written and all of that um, emotional weight uh, behind it. And I, I'm wondering how you kind of uh, walk that line, because it is really difficult to not let the saxophone in this saxophoneness drop while keeping it going yeah so like this is actually this kind of ties into kind of something i talk about when um like i'm doing like different outreaches or master classes with like different like university students either before or after these performances and so it's just interesting because you know when we talk about repertoire in general just broadly right now you know, usually when a musician, interpreter, or student professional interprets a piece of music, it's always, what is the story that goes with it? Or what's the made up story? Or what is, you know, how do we hyperimpose an event from our life, you know, onto this piece of music to like, give it that extra special emotional meaning or whatever, right? Um, and then, you know, and usually it's like, okay, my, this is about my goldfish dying or whatever, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, it, I think for me, like when we, when it, like this piece, this piece specifically, or even just any of the repertoire that I'm, queer repertoire that I'm working on, you know, it hits a little bit differently that I've noticed just because these stories are, I mean, they're real. Like, you know, that's kind of the center of the project is these stories are real, you know, people, you know, it isn't just rainbows and sunshines, right? People die. And like, you know, we've all had it where we've all been. You know, we've all faced, um, you know, just different attacks on different levels. You know, obviously, um, you know, not like nothing that terrible has happened because we're here. But at the same time, we've all faced violence um, or prejudice at some point in our life, you know, and we can relate to that just because it's part of our community. And so when it comes to like an actual in the moment performance setting, it's hard to, you know, when I talk about that, what the piece means, what it represents, I have to take probably about five to 10, you probably more like 15 seconds just to ground myself, just to be able to physically perform it, you know, just cause it is so emotional. Um, and there are moments where, you know, sometimes the pauses end up taking a little bit more time just because you have to, I want it to be an emotional experience, but I also, you know, if the emotions take too far control, then, then you sacrifice things in the performance. And so it's, how do you ride that line? Um, 
and you almost just kind of have to be mentally grounded the whole time, just knowing this is going to be an emotional roller coaster. Buckle up, but like take the time you need when you know there's a fomata or there's a pause. Or um, the nice thing is with like Stewart's piece, there's like an aleatoric like in the middle. Um, the piano does this like repetitive kind of ostinato aleatoric type pattern, so I can take more time in the middle of that if I need to just to ground myself for an extra second, like the performance is not ruined from that. Um, I don't have that luxury with other pieces that are more uh, technical, <laughs> but you know, when you have moments like that, that's, you know, that's kind of how I approach that is let myself express and feel the emotions I need to. But, you know, if there's a moment where, you know, there's a long dramatic pause or there's a fermata or other stuff going on where I can take a moment more, that's usually where I kind of, have that planned in where, okay, this is where you can process, um, kind of recoup emotionally, if that makes sense. We, we, we had Stuart on, um, three or four months ago, I think it was. Um, and, and I, I must admit, I think he would be really pleased with what you did with it. Um, I have to say, I mean, I thought I, the, what I wrote when I, I, I listened to it was beautifully expressive. And 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 what you did with it, I think, was fantastic. And and obviously, reading up a little bit about the story and and understanding just from the title uh, what it was, I think, was was deeply effective. So I, I think it was uh, it was. I, I mean, I, I don't think I would be able to not end up in tears going through it um, if I had to do something of of that emotional. So I, I but it was Thank wonderfully. You. So I think you did a fantastic job. Well, yeah. And like every time, like almost every time there is a, I end up in tears afterwards. Like that is mm -hmm. very much that that takes a moment just to get out of that because it is one of the darker pieces on the program. Hmm. Yeah. But I think it says something that both you and Stuart together here have, have created a piece that can do that to people and and make them feel that way so so for me that is kind of you know it, it's it's uh yeah i don't even know the right word to use here because i you know you want to say it's fantastic but it isn't fantastic because the story like, is so dark. yeah so yeah i mean that's i mean that's hard to be like you want to say i love the piece but like you don't want to like you yeah. love the music you don't love the reason why the music is you know was influenced the way it was you know i mean mm -hmm. it's incredibly beautiful it's just tragic that based on what's inspired on like that is the true tragedy of it i'm curious who your uh audiences have been so far for this do you find you're drawing mainly from uh queer community or do you find people are bringing kind of friends what's what's the demographic been uh i would say it's about 50 50 right now so a lot of the outreaches we've been doing the past few months and how we schedule are through different just universities around the country. And so it's a, it's a mix of people from the community. It's a mix of students and faculty. Um, and then, um, you know, but then also like with, with outreaches, you know, we've reached out to different, um, LGBTQ like associations, like the one we did in Fort Collins, like there was a whole, um, uh, like a book club, I think, I don't know what the, I think it was like a queer book club in Fort Collins, like a lot of older, you know, queer people came from that, came from hearing from that. So it's kind of a eclectic kind of group when you actually kind of analyze the different 
audience grouping group of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, we have a few, um, our, our next concert coming up on, on November 10th is actually at the Kansas City Library. So that's going to be a very eclectic group because it's going to be probably from people all over, just all sorts of different backgrounds from even just the community in Kansas City. Um, cause they're promoting it within their, they're promoting it within their library circle. Um, and then obviously it's going to be, cause it's a, my hometown, it's going to be a lot of friends, family, friends for this one, but also, you know, who knows who else will show up, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe we should, uh, talk about the next piece, uh, which is coming up, which I, what do you want to do next? Resonances? Maybe is that the next one to go for? So maybe tell us a little bit about that. That's that's one of your bits, one of your pieces. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of funny because, you know, of all the things I do, like whenever I compose stuff like that is the most just internal imposter syndrome type thing I have on myself. <laughs> um, it had to be what it is. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, no way. I premiered that with a good friend, Eddie Goodman, a couple of weeks ago in the University of Arizona. And that basically came about because... When we were, like, I'm just going to start off with, like, I've always loved his playing and, like, we've always, like, mutually admired each other. And so when I was scheduling the visit and um, performance at his at his university, we really wanted to do something together. We really wanted to play together. We wanted to do something collaborative. And so um, life happens, as as we all know, and we decided about, like, the week or two before, hey we should probably figure out what we're playing together, (laughs) you know? Um, And so at that point, you know, with, you know, we're both busy um, and with, you know, let's just say two weeks of preparation time, it's like, okay, what can we do with as many, what can we do with as minimal effort as possible for a maximum amount of result? Right. And so kind of going back to the, the canon of classical saxophone, there's a few, cute pieces. I mean, they're really nice pieces from like the uh, 19th century, very parlor, uh, chamber parlor type kind of stuff. Um, But kind of going back to programming and aesthetically, like that doesn't match the program one bit. And that'd be a pretty hard left term going from, you know, um, you know, anything queer related to, okay, we're going to do a random saxophone parlor piece from Belgium from the from 1850 because that's what we're doing and so the audience on their toes yeah um (laughs) so you know and then also so I was looking for random stuff that we could do that was fairly easy to put together and queer composed and like nothing really fit kind of really fit all the check marks and so I was just like you know what I'll write something you know I'll I'll figure something out I'll write something um and I wrote that piece in about a day or two, but I really kind of approached it kind of literally with, with the title. So resonances, um, playing off, you know, just the beauty of when two saxophones are together, like just the sound with the harmonics are really inlined and they play even just a simple major third, like just the beauty of the overtones of all of that. Uh, and it's really simplistic, but effective at the same time. So. I ended up writing, I think it's about four or five minutes of, it's just, it's melodic, but it's not at the same time, kind of um, almost in protest in a, in a sense of other modern saxophone music, because it either goes into the very higher, faster, louder, 
kind of very technically just demanding type of works to this is almost minimalistic where if you look at the page, it's nothing but whole notes. Um, and there, it's not even measured. It's not even metered. It's very organic where, you know, you kind of choose your own adventure with that. There's no real phrase marking. It's, you know, and it kind of plays along with the, um, with the title and meaning behind it also just resonance between, you know, two performers, two players together when, you know, when you're playing with someone, you know, well, it just, you two click together and it naturally, you know, the performance naturally resonates within itself, just doing it together. Um, so that's kind of how that all kind of came about. <laughs> Let's take a listen then.
there's something really uh, always magical about like two saxophones. I, I think it's such a rarely heard combo. Like we really don't have duets of like just two saxophones often. The one that I mean immediately comes to mind, not to not talk about your piece for a second, but there's a, a quartet um, by Chen Yi for uh, wind ensemble and four saxophones, which is wild because who has four soloists as sax, four saxophone soloists in one piece uh, as a quartet? Um, but it's super rare. It's it's a really rare thing to hear that timbre uh, by itself, and so it's so lovely to hear at the same time. It's really it's really quite nice. What um, I mean, I know you said it was kind of like put together within a short time frame, as things often maybe are. But um, <laughs> what's the uh, what's what's the life of it afterwards? Like, have you done it uh, a couple times, or was the premiere just the first time? Or uh, well, the premiere was literally like twelve days ago, so I have not had a chance to do it yet. Um, but um, actually, like a couple of students from that performance wanted to wanted to perform it on their duo recital, so I ended up kind of re-editing some things and so it's going to have a life from that and um i think you know kind of even tying back to the program like i'm going to use it more also as a as a you know when i'm in a when i'm in a place where there's you know i have a friend who plays saxophone maybe i'll rearrange it for another instrument but i really actually like it for two saxophones but mm. you know it could be just a strong piece of you know just showing allyship or you know togetherness within the community. Um, and so I think I have a few other performances of it sprinkled around, but I mean, honestly, as far as I know, I don't know, like, we'll see where it goes. Um, and that's kind of that, and that kind of ties back to the imposter syndrome composer within me. It's like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't write, whenever I write stuff, I don't write stuff to, this sounds horrible, but like, I don't write to huge air quotes, promote my own composition or like, you know, do anything with it per se. Like I write it for the moment for, you know, what I need. And if it gets attention and it's beautiful, awesome. And I just, you know, use it kind of when, when it's needed. Um, Composer of circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and like, I mean, with that being said, like, I like to think like I do a decent job, like I'm not going to win a Grammy from this or any means, but like, you know, it's, I'm proud of it. Like it's good. Um, but, uh, you know, that's just a hard kind of thing I've dealt with myself even just like almost coming out as a composer like I'm like tiptoeing around it kind of just like <laughs> am I one am I not I don't know <laughs> I, I thought it was very I mean I when I listened to it I thought it was very melancholy I thought it was kind of you know it was kind of one of those sort of things that had a, a you know it was it was relaxing but had a sort of a slight melancholy feel to it so it sort of made you feel a little bit a little bit uncomfortable from time to time but just kind of went along with those as you say with those lovely yeah. resonances in it which was nice and and actually when i was thinking about it it's what you just said it actually struck me because you just said about another instrument i think any instrument it would probably work really well with any instruments that have lots of overtones in it mm -hmm. i mean you know a very pure instrument it probably wouldn't but sort of lots of overtones yeah and, and I must also say, Jacob, uh, I will introduce you afterwards to the William Tell Overture played entirely on saxophones. <laughs> it is simply one of the most outrageous things you'll ever hear. So. Yeah. monstrosity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the whole thing on it, it is, you know. There's a, uh, 
again, not to, not to go down too many different yeah. rabbit holes, but there's uh, Bugler's Holiday, which is like a very famous uh, trumpety piece, but Bugler's Holiday, it has uh, become a thing that every instrument group, every wind instrument group likes to do as a little party trick. And so there are mm-hmm. recordings of bassoons doing Bugler's Holiday. Oh my God. Doing Bugler's Holiday. <laughs> there's a quartet of bass clarinets doing Bugler's Holiday. And it is also a monstrosity. It is also an abomination, but it is very good. Yeah. You should definitely get them all to do the William Tell Overture because yeah. that makes anything sound really strange. <laughs> yeah. If I see that on oh. Nick's latest thing, I'll, you know where the idea came from. <laughs> well, they're actually, I mean, if you want to talk about just like obnoxious, like saxophone choir stuff, there's one piece. I don't, I forget like it's actual, like the proper title, but basically it's a mashup of William Tell Overture, like all the like classical isms, like it mashes up, uh, it's called Sax Ranger Goes Mad. You need to look this up. Like that, the, or the Lone Ranger or something like the Lone Ranger Goes Sax Mad or something like that. But it mashes up William Tell, 1812, um, like just all the like Brahms lullabies, just all the like classical trope things into like this like three minute like monstrosity of just all of those isms in one piece. Probably made them a million. Probably made them. <laughs> Probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's just say to the audience, feel free to listen to Nick's resonances because it doesn't sound anything like that. It is a really nice piece of music. <laughs> but I will say, to tie us in, like, again, saxophone is able to do those weird things. Like, we can do those strange things on saxophone. You never see violinists doing this. A group of violinists would never do <laughs> That would embarrass the hell out of them and they would never, ever do it. But wind players will. We'll do anything yeah. weird and strange. <laughs> I request, please, to to Jacob and Nick doing strange things with their instruments. Um, send them in, and we'll we'll arrange. I can probably make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's go back to your composing, because because you, you said you feel an imposter, which I think is kind of probably true for anyone who's kind of good at their things. They do. Um, I, I mean, how how I mean, how long have you been, I mean, have you been composing since you were a lot younger? Is this something you've just sort of got into or? or... Oh, well, I mean, I kind of just did it out of like necessity. Like I've never, like, okay. So like, for example, like throughout like both my like college degrees, um, like in my undergrad, I took an arranging class just because I had credits to fill. So like I ended up arranging like, part of Bartok's uh, microcosmos for like full orchestra for the, for the um, final, just because what else am I going to do? You know? Um, and then like in grad school, like I ended up taking all of the, uh, like all the counterpoint stuff, like fugue writing, counterpoint class, all that, like all those kind of theory classes, just cause it's always like intrigued me. And I, you know, if I'm going to take a theory class, like I want to do something somewhat, I mean, I don't think writing a fugue is practical by by any means, but you know, like that, I I always loved fugues, and I'm a sucker for you know a good like a just a very good like well written fugue, um, and so I ended up writing you know writing for that, and like I wrote like little, just like little ditties like here and there like literally like, um, just random stuff, and like I ended up writing some like, 
short jazz tunes, just like lead sheets with like, okay, here's a simple melody, here's a chord change, chord changes, um, and then improvise with those. But like, as far as like big air quotes, professional composing type stuff, um, I would say, you know, kind of during the pandemic, I actually, that's probably when I kind of started diving into that kind of more just out of, you know, what else is there to do, you know, especially like the first few months. And so I ended up, um, yeah, it was a lawless time. Like I ended up writing like these, uh, set of caprices that were basically modeled after like the Paganini, uh, violin, like the, those. And so they're like, they're like, they were basically my challenge. Okay. How hard can I write, you know, how crazy and hard can I write like a caprice like this? And so most of them, um, yeah, no, there's one that like I listened to a recording of me playing and I was like, gee, like, how did I ever do this? And I was like, oh, wait, I chugged Red Bull right before that because it's just like a million miles per hour. <laughs> um, but uh, out of like the eight or 10 I did, like there's only one that like I still pull out just because it, you know, it just kind of resonated with, I think it was the best one out of the whole batch and it's just, it's inherently the most melodic one. Um, and it kind of follows like a Bach Chaconish type of, progression vibe type of thing and so i just you know i break that out whenever kind of just out of necessity like i'm doing a program i need four minutes of something to kill you know what do i do i'll just whip out my thing because i wrote it like i should be able to play it usually but um after like a few minutes of practice yeah <laughs> you wrote those back and you're fine yeah yeah <laughs> um but yeah i mean that's pretty much where um just kind of like my compositional where i'm at i mean you know, and I kind of tend to take whatever, you know, I mean, this probably happens with everyone, I assume, um, kind of whatever you're listening to kind of ends up coming out kind of of what you're writing or comes out in the writing. And so like during that time, like I was listening to, I don't know why I was listening to the Paganini stuff, but apparently I was. And so that's how those all came about. And like with this, um, I've been listening to like a lot of um, uh, like like Steve Reich, like the desert music for like full orchestra voices and whatnot. And mm -hmm. so I think that kind of comes out in a roundabout way, just like the tension and also just um, kind of like the minimal minimalistic side of things with it. So. It makes perfect sense. We, we yeah. a lot on what we're listening to. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you should compose more. I think uh, this no. is a, a fun new adventure maybe for you. Um, but uh, the last piece we have to listen to, uh, wonderful uh, ending ending to our, our little program, but Flitzquip. So tell us about this one, because it's, it's a little different from the other two. Yeah, so this is definitely the more um, kind of in vain with the more virtuosic, you know, just pyrotechnic type stuff. Um, but at the same time, it's still melodic and it's, you know, I mean, it. It's not for, I feel like this is not one of those pieces that are virtuosic for the sake of being virtuosic. It's more, you know, it's kind of in line with the nature of the piece. So Flitz Quip, um, pretty much a, uh, you know, how it kind of translates or what the meaning of it is basically like a, you know, a fast, quick-witted comment, right? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, if you've ever been to a, you know, drag performance or something like that, like there's nothing but that those galore. So this is kind of like, kind of in that kind of vein where, you know, witty, witty response, comment and like fast in that response. And so um, I feel like the piece is pretty, uh, 
in line with that, with that kind of description, like it's very, you know, very comp, like goes back and forth. Um, and so, uh, my friend Evan, he ended up writing that and it just showed up in my inbox one day and he was like, Hey, I wrote you a piece, do what you want with this. And I was like, Oh my God, like, this is amazing. <laughs> uh, and so I was probably sitting on it for like a year or so because like it just showed up in my inbox, like in the middle of COVID, which no one was doing performances. Really. There weren't much going on at that point. And so, um, kind of fast forward to last year, I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to perform in Carnegie Hall twice. And so the first time we did a more kind of standard program and then the second time, which was like literally a month or like, like a month or like 45 days later, like it was a quick turnaround. Mm -hmm. Um, the piano, the pianist and I, Maya, we were like, okay, we're literally coming back here in like almost a month. How do we like, for the, you know, how do we, how do we one up ourselves? You know, like you don't just go back and do the same thing. So like, how do we one up ourselves? And so we were like, you know what, why don't we premiere this piece? Like that's a pretty big one up compared to, you know, for a, for a second performance. So uh, we premiered that in Carnegie hall. Uh, and it was like, it was awesome. Like as every performance there, like as those always are, but like we got like all the woos and stuff from the audience. Like it was fun. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty much like we kind of use it now um, as like either a really fun start to a program or as like an encore piece because it's really mm -hmm. perfect for one of those. Like it's perfect at either end, I feel like um, kind of either energizes up or it's a very like great way to kind of leave leave a performance. Um, so that's kind of where that's all at. Thank you. 
I loved this piece. I thought it was fantastic. I loved the Alto Sax. It was just, it's, uh, you know, fantastic. And yeah. it, for me, it had this really big feel to it. I know it sounds maybe it's, it felt like it was, it felt very American. I don't know if that's a good <laughs> or bad thing to say, but it felt very big, you know, in a big spatial, mm -hmm. like American way, like, like, I guess, some. Um, um some um pieces from the 1930s 40s 50s felt like you know has that sort of americana feel to it very big and i thought that was that was really great i mean i i love the other but this was fantastic as you say to finish the show as it were it was it was just really energizing thank you Um, it also made me think I should listen to more saxophone music. <laughs> well, after this, I I I talked to my I talked to my wife. I said, "Yeah, we're interviewing guys who plays the sax." And she goes, "What classical sax?" I said, "Yeah." And she goes, "Is there such a thing?" And I said, "Look, I'll show you afterwards. I'll show you afterwards because <laughs> actually, I think it's it is kind of fascinating. I think it's it's it sounds. I think because we don't hear it, it sounds so different and so incredible. I think that's the thing. I I kind of. It, it's so different. I, I don't even know how to explain it properly. You know yeah. what I mean? It's a different set of nerves or something or a different sound. Just the, the acoustics of it or, you know, and like, you know, if you go down like the rabbit hole, like there's saxophonists and I, it's even part of the repertoire where they'll do transcriptions of traditional, you know, even more traditional like string repertoire. Like they'll do the Franck violin sonata or they'll do Bach flute sonatas or stuff like that. And it really... I mean, for me, it's normal because, like, this is the world I live in. But, like, from what I've heard from, like, a lot of people, when they hear, you know, let's just say, like, a violin sonata performed on saxophone for the first time, they're, like, a lot of comments is that the first few comments that you'll get is, wow, I didn't even know a saxophone could do that. And, two, it'll be, that was, like, a completely different piece. Like, they knew they were listening to the same notes, same rhythm, same everything, mm -hmm. but it's just a completely different it literally sounds like a different, a completely different composition almost at that point. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when done well, like it, you know, I would also say saxophonists are daring enough where there's a lot of, you know, we, there, we do ever like, like as a community, like we love the challenge. So, you know, if there's like a crazy arpeggio section in the violin Mendelssohn concert or whatever, like we're crazy enough where we're like, yeah, we'll work on it and spend two years to work on it and <laughs> pull it off. And then we'll pull it off. Um, you know, like we're the crazy ones who will try it. <laughs> I mean, do you think it's partly due to, I mean, I, I kind of hadn't thought this through. So excuse me if I get down a, a very unusual rabbit hole here. <laughs> I, but it's two wind people. Maybe you can, can explain this. I mean, do you think there is this, I mean, in terms of a saxophone, it has this kind of, and I don't mean this in a nasty way, like a, dirty feel to it you know it's not it's not a clear tonal resonance to it it's got it's got as you say it's got all these overtones and this kind of thing in it and and that is i mean i get the feeling that's kind of unusual to hear in a classical sense um i mean you do hear it but and i guess you do it jacob i, I know we've talked about this your clarinet by over doing different blowing techniques you generate all these extra harmonics and this kind of thing so so is this do you think we're hearing um like a new what am i trying to say here a new a new sp spectral sort of thing of, of 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 area of like which we which which for an audience you're hearing something so different that it you know you know it's familiar but it is this kind of 
extra stuff to it that it's carrying because of all these extra resonances or something. I don't know if that makes sense at all, but no, I mean that that makes total sense. Like you know, you hear a pianissimo low, you know, low D on a violin, like it's going to be very pure, especially if they're doing the the mute thing. Like it's a very pure sound with saxophone or you know flute or bassoon or any instrument like wind instrument. There's going to be more. Sometimes you'll hear air noise, or sometimes you'll hear like the actual noise of the instrument, like the just the instrument breathing. Um, but like, you know, even going back, like when the saxophone was invented, like it was kind of meant to be this bridge. Um, it was kind of meant, it was kind of built to be the instrument that could do anything. So it was meant to have the, you know, the sound of a woodwind, the pyrotechnics blend of a a string instrument, and then also the power of a brass instrument. Um, yeah, I mean, that's Adolf Sax wanted it to be part of, be a core part of the orchestra. And now that didn't happen because uh, it's a long story. There's a lot of scandal, like long story short, people didn't like that he invented, that he had actually invented this. And I mean, if you look like it at original, you know, 19th century saxophone, it looks like a modern saxophone. Like it looks, it hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, You know, if you look at like the history of like the flute or the clarinet, like you can trace it back thousands of years because it's constantly, like constantly evolving. But so, because Adolf Sachs made pretty much a more or less a perfectly working instrument, like on the first first get go with the patent, and that's not that's not like an egotistical thing. Like it literally, like there was very little like that had to be done because it worked. Like mm-hmm. it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the instrument makers of the time, like the clarinetists and whatnot, they uh, did not like that competition and that level of competition. And so they like, there's early, like there's a whole book of like people that like references, like all these companies like hired hitmen to like, <laughs> no, seriously. Like they hired like hitmen to, you know, they tried to burn down his factory in Paris a few times. They tried to have hitmen take out Adolf, like seriously. And so, and then also to the point where they would also pay like the orchestra members and composers to not, actually write for the saxophone in the orchestra and so that kind of perpetuated why it's not in the orchestra not because composers didn't like it like there was like rossini loved it berlioz loved it you know all those core romantic they loved it they just couldn't write for it because then if they didn't write for it then their piece wouldn't get played or their orchestra would get like burnt down in the middle of the performance or something That's incredible. I have no idea that yeah. clarinetists were so upset, Jacob. We're very <laughs> upset. Let me tell I you. Like... <laughs> well, I mean, it was a, I mean, it was a double whammy because he also he also did that with the bass clarinet. That's why the bass mm-hmm. clarinet has like that saxophone shaped kind of that bell at the bottom, good. and why it's metal. Same mm-hmm. same guy. So they, and he was a pretty good like clarinet maker as well, and so. It was kind of that we don't like that you're better than all of us, so we're going to team up against you and burn out, burn, you know, we're going to make this as miserable as possible. The world of classical music is, you know, I mean, backstabbing bunch of people. It's so true. Absolutely. Yeah. I think probably that's a good place to end it. Um, um, honestly, I thank you, Nick, for your for your time. Um, it's been fantastic. It's opened up a whole new world of music for me to to actually look into this. So, so thank you so much, and I hope it does the same for some of our listeners as well. Thank you so much.
So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jacob and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.